um, if you've got a cold, you know, you know, in the old days, we just struggled through, we have a cold, we came, none of that anymore. It's not, it's not the right thing. It never was the right thing, but we did it, you know, so. It, Plus, you don't have to do it now. Well, yeah, and it's, you know, a lot of the things we're doing because of the pandemic are really smart. Right. Agreed. You know, it makes no sense to go anywhere with a cold and expose other people. Uh, in my view, um, so, yeah. well, that, well, see, they shouldn't, they should respect that if you're sick, you're sick. So, yeah, so everybody is here in person. Just a couple more on Zoom. Vince is here. Good. Uh, Thomas, are you here yet? And Miguel, I know sometimes he has trouble. And Mariah. Well, I'm sure they'll be joining us momentarily, but, um, oh, okay, running late. Thomas, see, I, got, I had to check my emails. Okay, great. Sometimes I forget. And Cynthia Harrison isn't here tonight, so I'm like, taking care of everything. Right? <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. All right, let's see. Um, why don't I just start with some announcements, all right? Um, let's see. Uh, next week, the plan is to come to Huntington at... You can, you can zoom in from your room, be much better for you. The same like, you know, those of you who are not taking candidates, you could, but I don't know how that works. If we're not having class in person, I mean, it's, it's one thing to zoom in from your home. It's another thing to zoom in from a room because I get the feeling that we're miles apart. Um, so those of you who can, Zoom in from home, and I'll keep updating you in case there's a change. Uh, but right now, and those of you, uh, hi, Mariah, how are you? Uh, Govinda, hi. I'm good, how are you? Sorry I'm late. No, that's okay. I'm just going through some announcements because there's a couple of people not signed on yet. But yes, done. We got a mass on Wednesday night. Yeah, okay. So that's it. We'll make the best of it, and I'll try to zoom in the camera as close as I can. Uh, to you, and if I'm too far away, just keep telling me. We want to make the best of it. All right, I'm going to be coming from Peekskill, going in there, uh -huh. near, near Peekskill. Right. So if anybody needs a ride, I can stop and pick them up, and they can ride with me to Huntington. See, Rob, Rob, Robert comes to Huntington when I go to Huntington. He's like my groupie, you know? Just follow I me. Have no choice. I can't hear you otherwise. I know. I know. I know. I know. I'm it's great. But uh, anybody who needs anybody, a ride. Anybody, well, you know, the deacon candidates That's need to go. be here in purpose. <laughs> but if you all want to come to Huntington, well, going if we all go. <laughs> you know, it'd be like a field trip. You have enough seats. Um, we'd have to, no, we don't have enough seats. <laughs> Anyway, so that's the plan, but I will follow up as I think you can see I'm, I try to really keep reminding you and letting you know, but for those of you who live on Long Island, I, I need a commitment 
from as many as possible that want to come in person, uh, just let me know. All right, because I'm happy to be there and I love to be there. And my commute is a lot easier going home, but, um, but to be present with you. So, uh, but I don't want it to be just one person. So. I mean, I'm not worth it. <laughs> Everybody's worth it. So Dr. Escher, now that's next Wednesday the third? Yes. Okay, so that, that works for me. Okay, so you can all, if you're, if you're coming, just uh, either post it on the dashboard, say I'm coming to Huntington, or send me an email, just so I know. Okay, we'll okay. do. Perfect, that'll be great. All right, so that's one thing. The other thing, I'm sad to tell you, I haven't finished grading your midterms yet. I, oh, I usually pride myself in a week turnaround, but I just, I couldn't get it done. So I'm like halfway there, but by next Wednesday, you'll all have them back. I will email them back to you. Uh, so you'll have them before class um, next time. Um, I also, and better late than never, in the files, uh, you might notice I put something called grading rubric. I put it in the files, it's in the student handbook, but I just wanted to just see what we look at when we're grading. Uh, we're all supposed to do that. But I just thought it's handy for you to see uh, that. Um, I also meant to tell you this last week, um, and I'm sorry I forgot. But as far as reading, now we're, you're finished with Metzger, uh, you know, uh, and you should always be reading. Um, but I neglected to say, as far as the Irwin book, context in text, you should have at least read the first chapter. It's a lengthy chapter, but it's called Tradition. And so if you haven't read it, I just put it on your to-do list to read it. And then as we move along, I will try to pull pieces out of that book because it is pretty dense and I am reconsidering if I'll use it again. We'll see as, as required reading. But since I put it up there, I will pull sections for you to look at. All right. But for now, just get past the first chapter. All right. Yeah, which book is that? Now? The Irwin book, Context and Text. Oh, the big one. The big one. Yeah. yeah. I don't even have it here. So yeah. I couldn't carry it. All right. Uh, that, and then the other thing I just wanted to mention is uh, turn it in. Uh, some, uh, you should have gotten, and I found out from Jackie uh, that you did get it, an invitation from Turn It In. Um, I see some not sure if you got it. We're experimenting. I don't want you to worry about this. This is just a piece of information. As a school, we are experimenting on a trial basis with Turnitin. It's a tool for professors in grading. It's a tool for students. Um, and I am not proficient at it at this point, so I didn't. I added you all to my page and turn it in, but I did not add an assignment. So if you tried, like I know somebody did, to put in an assignment to get some feedback from turn it in before you give it to me, it, it didn't work because I didn't put in the assignment. But I will, and you're under no obligation to do this. It's just meant to be a tool to help you. Um, but uh, one of my colleagues told me um, that Grammarly, 
that some students use is actually she finds it better than turn it in. So we're, we're again, this is just by way of awareness. We are experimenting with it as a school. We don't know if we're going to keep it. But if, if you uh, got the invitation, I submitted all of your names and email addresses that you should have gotten it. Take it or leave it, I'm basically <laughs> telling you. Who would it be coming from? Turn it in. From be, turn it in. Maybe it went to junk mail. It's possible. It's possible. Uh, so, you know, you might want to look at that. All right, makes sense? You, okay, so that's um, my announcements for tonight. All right. Just to keep you updated. And we are going to, oh, and the other thing that I put on files is a revised outline. Uh, to get a more realistic, especially as I plan it again for next year, get a more realistic idea of how much we could cover, you know. So I try to adjust things and I try to keep to everything forthcoming as it is to avoid having class during your finals week because I know you all have finals and I'm trying to avoid that. I usually don't teach during finals week because you're gonna have your take home final. So I'm gonna do my best to avoid that. I'm not gonna say, oh, well, I have an extra week. I'm not thinking that way. I'm thinking, let me get this information covered. All right, um, so that's what that was. And it was to help me as well as it, looked, it was starting to look all mixed up on uh, the original. So, so that's that. And then, um, just move that. And then what I decide, up here I have tonight's session. And again, I apologize, I put a revised one up because when I was going through my copy, because I have my copy and I write my notes around it, I realized I didn't put the page numbers. So I went back and just did another one. So that's what that was all about. I don't know where I was yesterday. I was worried about the storm and I had a seminar last night. I was thinking, what if I lose internet? So my, I was distracted. But anyway, so for tonight, uh, what I decided to do, because we didn't finish the slides from last week, but I didn't put them up. But I know you all have them. I'm going to talk through them briefly to let you know what's there. And then we're going to jump right into um, this. How does that sound? Like a good plan, but before we do all that, we're going to go to prayer because you know it always makes us feel better because we forget about what we left behind, what we're going back to, and we focus on being present to each other, uh, to be present to our course material, and uh, certainly to be present to our Lord. So for our prayer, thinking very liturgically, we're anticipating tomorrow's feast, <laughs> uh, St. Simon and Jude. So we are uh, like our Jewish brothers and sisters. We are looking for the next day. So this is from uh, the, I believe it's from the collect for mass tomorrow. So focusing our attention on being here with each other and leaving all distractions aside. Of course, we call on the Holy Spirit to be our guide uh, through our material, through our time together, and we pray. 
O God, who is who by the blessed apostles have brought us to acknowledge your name, graciously grant through the intercession of St. Simon and Jude, that the church may constantly grow by increase of the peoples who believe in you. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. Amen. All right. So before we go into our topic for tonight, let me just go through briefly the end of the uh, slides from last week when we were talking about the structure uh, of the um, Sacrosanctum Concilium. And basically my idea was to let you know what you find when you look at this beautiful document, whether you have it online, whether you have it in a book, whatever it is, you need to know what you will find there. And this really should be, this document should be a source of uh, a resource for you from now until the end of time. <laughs> <laughs> All right, down to the end of time. It's something I look at very often, very often. Um, and it's a primary source. And as we'll learn later on, then we have the general instruction of the Roman Missal, which actually uh, trumps the document if there's any question, because we've had revisions since the document. So if there's a question of how a ritual is celebrated, something like that you would take the word of the general instruction if it differs slightly from what's in here. And we're gonna talk a little bit about that tonight, the revisions that came about. All right, so just continuing, and if you're, the slides from last week, it's slide 26. And again, it's just a rundown of the contents of this document and um, a little commentary if I feel it's needed. But um, we left off by, you know, we were talking about the ecclesiology, full active conscious participation, liturgy as source and summit. Those were the topics of what you find in this document and the Paschal Mystery, of course. And then the fifth one is called Norms for Adapting the Liturgy to the Culture and Traditions of People. And you find this at paragraphs 37 to 40. So it's a short little section. But adaptation was a, a principle of this document. And so 37 says, even in the liturgy, the church has no wish to impose a rigid uniformity. If you remember when we were looking at the Middle Ages and medieval period, right? There was more, uh, it, it was all about the rubrics and it was more rigid, right? So, you know, we're not saying, the church isn't saying that now. In matters that do not affect the faith or the good of the whole community, all right? Rather, the church respects and forces the genius and talents of the various races and peoples, all right? So it, this section really takes into consideration the diversity of the church. And just, we look here in New York, the, the diversity that we have and cultural adaptations are permitted. I like to use the example of the culture of children. 
Um, and we will look at the document, the directory for masses with children. We'll look at that briefly when we look at some contemporary things, but um, that would be considered cultural adaptation to elementary school children. But that, um, in my view, and the view of many commentators, scholars, et cetera, has been abused. That many well-intentioned adults have taken the idea of adapting the liturgy for children to mean we create something totally different. And that's not what adaptation means. And when we look at the directory for masses with children, we'll see that where you can adapt. So that's a per in my mind, that's a perfect example that adaptation doesn't mean we change it. It's, it's very different. So, so, um, I leave you with that thought, and we will look at that when we look at like pastoral issues. Um, number six is revision of liturgical books. This, this was a big deal at the time. And this is um, paragraph 21. It says, in this reform, both texts and writings should be so drawn up that they express more clearly the holy things they signify and that the Christian people, as far as possible, are able to understand them with ease and to take part in the rites fully actively and as benefits a community. Now, um, and you'll read this in uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium. You'll see it if you've read through the whole document that all of the liturgical books for all of the sacraments, in other words, all of the rites of the church had to be revised, all right, according to the guidelines and principles of this document. That's, that talks about the reforms of the Second Vatican Council. All right, so it specifically mentions, for example, it, um, I think it's paragraph 64. This is not your notes. This is off the top of my head. Calls for the restoration of the catechumenate which we finally were mandated to use in 1988. So you see how things take time. Um, it called for a rite of baptism for children. All right, now I'm talking about 1969 here, all right? And 65 to 69 was the time period. The rite of confirmation, things like that had to be re-looked at so that they were in connection with the guidelines and principles set forth here. Now, an example of what I meant before about the general instruction of the Roman Missal. In 2011, this is just a little footnote, we have the revision of the Roman Missal. So it's a revised Roman Missal, so it's different than the Roman Missal that's referred to in here, okay? So it's the 2011 revised edition. And Interestingly enough, since then, we have, I brought a lot of things tonight for show and tell, we have had to revise all of our ritual text in the same way we had to do it after 1965. So just as an example, I brought uh, with me tonight the 2016 Order of Confirmation. All right, now, it used to be called, according to Vatican II, it was the right of confirmation. Can anybody?
everybody guess why in 2016, they're revising after the revised edition of the Roman Missal in 2011, you all know about that, right? Why it's now called the Order of Confirmation. Anybody have a clue? It's the last of the sacraments of initiation. No. <laughs> That's all right. You can guess. They're using the word order as opposed to right. What was, hi, Thomas. Thank you for your email. You're what welcome. was the revision of uh, the Roman Missal in 2011 all about? Why did we have a revised uh, Missal? Because of the translation. Yes. They lost the, the meaning. Transla translation became a formal translation from the Latin rather than a dynamic. That's it. Good. So the word right, R-I-T-E, of confirmation was a dynamic translation from the Latin. The English translation from the Latin is order, means the same thing. So now our latest one, 2016, you'll get this next semester. This will be your text <laughs> for part of the year, Robert, um, is the order of confirmation. In the same way, we have the order of celebrating matrimony. And I realized when I got here today, I didn't, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a liturgical nerd. I own, write ritual texts. I own them. I love them. I read them. I study them, but I also do have the order of baptism for children. All right. The right of Christian initiation of adults is under revision. We're waiting for Rome to give us the okay of what the United States bishops did. And when we get it back, if it's approved, it will be called the Order of Christian Initiation of Adults. There'll be no more RCIA. It'll be the OCIA, but I hope we can not use the initials and just call it what it is. But anyway, that's an example. I hope that makes sense because it's an example of what uh, the document on the liturgy called for that all of the ritual texts would be revised. And the reason is that we would get, as you will see, when we go through the individual sacraments, that the revisions had to reflect the ecclesiology and the sacramental theology of the individual sacraments. So the point here is, uh, it's a long way of telling you that the Vat Second Vatican Council called for a revision of all liturgical texts. And it took some time. It took some time. Most of them we didn't have until the 70s, the early 70s. So from 65 till the early 70s. And now from 2011, we're still working on, on uh, ritual texts. Um, so on the following slide 28, I'm not going to read the whole thing. You can read these for yourself, but I want to make you aware, uh, paragraph 31 and 34, again, are talking about the revision of liturgical books. And 31 does make a point of saying that they must ensure the rubrics make provisions for the parts belonging to the people, because that was a major part of the reform. Right? Um, and then, I love this, it says, the rites should be marked by a noble simplicity. 
remember when we talked about the medieval period, how there wasn't simplicity. It was duplication of gestures and different things like that. That um, sacrosanct and concilium was really saying, no, you can do it. One sign of the cross is as powerful as three. It's not necessary. So that's basically just an example of what they were getting um, into here. All right. And then the next is education and formation. And we've talked about this so many times, how important education is. But here, uh, 16, um, and I have it highlighted, uh, I'm on page 29 uh, from last week, professors appointed to teach liturgy in seminaries or religious houses of study and theological faculties is to, is it is to rank among the principal courses. It is to be taught under its theological, historical, historical, spiritual, pastoral, and canonical aspects. And so that it notes seminaries, because remember before I told you that earlier there was no liturgical formation. It was just all about the rubrics, period. There was nothing about liturgical theology, etc. So we called for that. So I'm under obligation as a liturgy professor to be well informed, you know, on, on this. Um, and then 17 says in seminaries and houses of religious clerics should be given liturgical formation in their spiritual life. Um, there's a big connection there. I know in a book that I just had published, I'm talking about uh, the spirituality of uh, initiation ministers. And clearly, I, I, I put in that you have to have, in order to minister in the rite of Christian initiation of adults, you need a liturgical spirituality because of what that rite calls for, being accommodated to the liturgical year, uh, a celebration of the liturgy of the word on Sunday, et cetera, is so important. All right? Hi, Miguel. Good to see so, you. Sorry to join us in person. Maybe next, maybe another time. So anyway, again, this is to, I just, don't get lost in the details. I want you to know what you find in this document. All right? And I'm going to trust that you're all going to read it. Read it deeply. Okay? And hold it in your heart for the rest of your life. <laughs> okay? All right. Let me skip to... Uh, 31. We're just breathing through the rest of the slides from last week. They're not up on the screen, but some other things to be aware of. And this is important, and I know I've mentioned it before. Uh, paragraph 26. Liturgical services are not private functions, but are celebrations belonging to the church. Language is important. Words are important. These are words that should resonate with you and be conscious of them because nowhere before did we ever see this, that liturgy and sacraments are celebrations of the church. So when you hear somebody, especially deacon candidates, when you're deacons or priests, when somebody comes to your parish and says, I want a private baptism, it's bad language. No such thing. We know what they mean. They don't want to be with the 20 other babies on a Sunday afternoon. But no, even if it's one baby, it's never private. It's ecclesial. 
right? And when we talk about the other sacraments, we'll talk about what that means. But it's spelled out right here. What about the difference between, because like all the baptisms that I do are just, you know, the one, one baby, I very rarely have I ever had like two. Mm -hmm. But where I used to be, we did all the baptisms, they were part of the mass on Sunday. Okay, now everything I do is, is private. I mean, when I say private. It's outside of mass. It's outside of the mass, right. and it's for one baby with just yeah. a family. But it's not, still not private. That's the point I'm making. Anybody could show up who wanted. Yeah, but it's still not private. It's still ecclesial. And the thing about that, um, and this is a good practical question, if you go to the order of celebrating baptism with children, in the introduction, it will tell you that Sunday is the best day to do it. And technically, all sacraments, technically, should be celebrated at mass with the community. And that includes weddings. But that doesn't happen. What's that? And ordinations. Why not? We used to, in a parish that I worked in, my first parish out on Long Island that I worked in, it was the custom at the time that um, the um, <coughs> seminarian, wherever he did his pastoral year, he was ordained in that parish. It was amazing. So it, it's not unheard of. It's not unheard of. But that's an ideal. Uh, and that particularly comes up with First Communions, and it's a real pastoral issue, but technically First Communion should be celebrated at Sunday Mass. Technically, ideally. I, I always look to the ideal, and then how do we get there? All right? So, Sunday would be the best option. Sunday is the Lord's Day. And that's what the uh, order of baptism would say, however, Many parishes don't do that. They do it what's called outside of Mass. We do it Sunday, but it's outside yeah, of Mass. Yeah, it's outside of Mass. It'd be better if it was in Mass. Why? Makes the connection with the Eucharist as a sacrament of initiation. It's just an ideal thought out there, you know? But I know it doesn't happen, but it still wouldn't be private. Even if there was one baby, the mother, the father, and the godparents. Still not private. That's the point that this makes. Yeah. My, my fear would be that me personally. <laughs> fear would be since it would prolong How many people would lose? Very upset. That's that's the that's the that's the sad thing. It is, yeah. Because you know what? And we learned this from the RCIA when we talk about it. In the uh, paragraph nine, I believe it is, of the RCIA, says that initiation is the responsibility of all the baptized. Now that goes for the RCIA, adults, okay? But it also goes for the order of baptism for children. It's our responsibility. First communions, confirmation. And it's very sad that if anybody saw it in a bulletin, oh, I'm not going to that mass, they're going to baptize babies. When I first moved to Pleasantville, they did do all baptisms and all first communions at Sunday mass. Mm -hmm. And you are correct that it does elongate the mass. And without a doubt that there were people who said, oh, this Sunday, we won't go to none because, you know, right. And, and, and I mean, you did have some yeah. people who got excited yeah. 
I love to see this. Yeah. Usually those were people whose kids were older who looked back at that time lovingly and posted <laughs> people who had little kids who thought I can't keep them quiet for five more minutes. We should give them all mixer to read. <laughs> yeah. Because there's a lot of good stuff in there. They got together three times a day to pray. Yeah, exactly. And you see, this is where the whole catechetical issue comes in. In general, the average person, the average Catholic is not aware that this is their responsibility to be with, pray with, support. See, the RCIA is the first right of the church to make it really explicit that it's the community who initiates. But that principle is meant to permeate through everything that we do. But we have to, and I just did a, a national workshop on this, we have to create awareness in our parish consistently that we need you at this baptism this Sunday or this first communion because we need you there to pray with these families, with these children. It's a real ideal, but it's the vision of the church. And that liturgy is timeless and we shouldn't be worried about being there five or 10 minutes longer. That, that's the ideal that someday before I die, we have to get to. I'm going to be like Virgil Michael and totally sad. <laughs> but anyway. Five or ten minutes prolonging, it might be on the list. But I think I made a point. I think I made a point. You know, here I am like 40 minutes later. I'm breathing through this. This is why I don't get through all the, the material. Okay. All right. So... 36, the use of the Latin language is to be preserved. Now, yeah, if you go back, it says mass in the vernacular, but it didn't mean to throw away everything. And that's why at times when we go to mass, in the ordinary form in English, we sing the Sanctus or the Agnus Dei in Latin. That's totally appropriate. And that people need to be familiar with it and not foreign to it. But for so long, we did away with it, then we tried to bring it back and people were totally confused, you know? I, I did a workshop on music for children a couple of weeks ago. And I had one guy, well, one participant was kind of arguing with me about hymns. I think I talked about this last week, but I said, Try singing Latin with kids. It can be done, and they'll love it. Just try, you know? And this is totally not, I'm not talking about mass in the extraordinary form or anything like that. But, you know, at times it's appropriate, and it tells us here as well. And then 34, uh, paragraph 34 is the idea of preaching should draw its content mainly from scriptural and liturgical sources. This is where, you know, a sermon prior to the reforms of the Vatican II, it was called a sermon. We now call it a homily because they're different. Um, but it was basically about anything. But, you know, it, the preaching should be connected to the word proclaimed for that Sunday or that weekday or whatever. All right. To help people make connections in their lives. Uh, what is Jesus inviting me to today? So that's um, basically a very long-winded way of finishing up telling you what you find in Sacrosanctum Concilium.
So if you haven't read it, it's not a long document. You need to read it because it's going to influence um, the rest of your work that we're doing here in the rest of the course. And it's certainly going to influence your final exam when you do your um, evaluation of a liturgy. You've got to know what the guidelines and principles are in that document, and then eventually you'll know um, the, um, the general instruction of the Roman Missal. Putting those together gives you the vision of the church of how liturgy should be celebrated. You good? So now we're going to move on. And I know you saw the outline, and it looks like it's a mile long, but it's not because every single one of these topics could be a course in itself. But this is a survey course, it's introductory. So I really try to keep it that way so we can get through it by 9.30 tonight. So we can try to stay on schedule, um, but we'll see, you know, flexibility. But we're gonna try because I don't wanna discourage you know, as an educator, I'm always interested in the dialogue or the exchange, the engagement that we have. So I don't want to discourage it, um, certainly. Um, so let's just see how it goes, all right? But following from the overview of Sacrosanctum Concilium, which gave us the guidelines and principles, we certainly can apply everything in that document to what we're going to talk about tonight of sacraments and sacramental theology, all right? And this is uh, a beautiful, beautiful uh, topic. And um, hopefully we'll get to talk about sacraments in general, and then I'm gonna break it down, the seven sacraments, into their categories. Sacraments of initiation, sacraments of healing, sacraments of service, all right? And then we, we need to incorporate into that um, just so you're aware of when we talk about matter and form or sacramental grace and sacramental character, that these words mean something to you. And there's a book on your um, request, um, recommended reading called The Sacramental um, Mystery. This is an easy read. It's a good read that... Um, a lot of my information, as you will see, I've, I've noted it on the slides, um, comes from, okay? Because I use this when I teach my course on confirmation as well. But anyway, the reform of the liturgy set in motion, remember, by the Second Vatican Council, as I said before, resulted in a revision in the way sacraments are understood and celebrated, all right? So uh, I'm going to briefly introduce you to that. How do we understand each one of these sacraments? What's the meaning? That's what we would call sacramental theology. And again, there could be a whole course on baptism. If I'm not mistaken, Robert, don't you have a course like that this year? Yes. <laughs> okay. Good. You could get up here and teach that section. <laughs> uh, but it could be a whole course. But, you know... It won't be. But remembering that liturgy is the ritual prayer of the church, um, the same concept applies.
all the sacraments. Sacraments are liturgy, right? So sacraments are ecclesial, meaning they are the prayer of the church. That was what I was getting at before. When I said they're not private functions, as Sacrosanctum Concilium tells us, okay? So it's the whole community that celebrates. Um, and I the example before that Rob brought up about the one baby, it's still the whole community celebrating, even if five people are there, doesn't matter, all right? Because the sacrament, using baptism as an example, is not just about the baby or the adult or whoever it is being baptized. It's not just about that person or the married couple. It's not just about them. It's about the whole church. Well, that would be absolutely correct. If you're going to do a baptism, let's say in the afternoon, right after the last pass, should you put something in the bulletin inviting people to come to it? You could. Wonderful thing is to invite a class, like kids. They can, they can make cards for that family. They could come and pray and see. I'm going to tell you something. This is an aside, thinking of kids. When my son, my youngest son, was in the fifth grade, I homeschooled him for religion because we had just transferred him from the Catholic school to public school. So I was teaching him at home. And we happened to go to a mass on Sunday, and I didn't know it, but there was a baptism at the mass. And it was so well celebrated that I thought to him, and he was like, you know, so interested. And I said to myself, that was the best lesson he ever had on baptism. So that's an idea catechetically to have, you know, permissions and parents come, invite fam, whatever, invite families to come. You know, they'll learn a lot about baptism. Not to belabor it. One thing I found that's really cool is when you're doing the baptism, generally speaking, because of the age group, there's going to be a lot of other children around. Instead of letting them sit in the pews, let them come up and stand around the baptismal font. Yep. And actually take place. I used to use one of the kids to hold the book, mm-hmm. you know, while I'm, while I'm doing the. Uh, yeah. And I found that the uh, I've had more feedback from parents afterwards, telling me that the, the kids were just odd. You know, mommy, can I go through that? you know, kind of a thing. Yes. Absolutely. That is, that's a catechetical moment you don't want to lose. Right. Uh, and it's liturgical catechesis because they're learning from what they're experiencing, not an explanation of. And then you can talk to them about it afterwards. I do. What did I said, you see? I said, you went through this. What did you see? What did, you know, yeah. things like that. No, we did it. Absolutely. Did it. Absolutely. Yeah. That makes sense? Everybody good? Thumbs up from the Zoom crowd. All right, so um, sacraments in general. Uh, I'm basically going to be looking at the Hafner book that I just mentioned to you and the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which, by the way, is a wonderful resource for liturgy. Actually, dragged it over to just have here tonight, but it's part two. Uh, the celebration of the Christian mystery has excellent breakdown of all the sac- liturgy in general, sacraments in general, and then each sacrament. So you're going to see, I pulled out some um, uh, 
sections for you to reflect on here. But um, so sacraments in general, according to Paul Hefner, the sacramental mystery lies at the heart of Christian life. To me, that's just a beautiful statement right there. Lies at the heart, right? We want people to know that, right? For it is through the church and the sacraments that God, the Father, through his Son, by the workings of the Holy Spirit, communicates his divine life to his people. So in general, they are the privileged channels where he touches the lives of his faithful. That is a profound, beautiful statement. We encounter the divine. We share, as you'll see when we talk about baptism, as the baptized, we have a share in divine life. You know, catechetically, we need to make people aware of that. That's an amazing thing. And we further share and celebrate that in and through the sacraments, every single one of them, okay? So that's a powerful statement. Encounter the divine. And I was talking to somebody before class, if everybody knew that, they'd be breaking the door down on Sunday morning, right? I think. So let us see what we find in Sacrosanctum Concilium. I want to make connections here uh, to this document the best that I can. Um, chapter three actually is called The Other Sacraments and Sacramentals. Because chapter two, I didn't intend to skip it. We're going back to it when we talk about the Eucharist and we talk about the general instruction. We'll go back to it. Because chapter two in Sacrosanctum Concilium is about the Eucharist. So chapter three is the other sacraments and sacramentals. So I just want to bring about through the document and the catechism of the Catholic Church what this means. All right. So here you see, whoops, sorry. Um, in the catechism of the Catholic Church, it says the sacraments are efficacious signs of grace instituted by Christ and entrusted to the church by which divine life is dispensed to us. So you see the Paul Hefner is saying exactly what the catechism of the Catholic church says, right? The visible rites by which the sacraments are celebrated signify and make present the graces proper to each uh, sacrament. They bear fruit in those who receive them with their required dispositions, all right? Make present the graces. And remember, grace is God. The love of God communicating with us, touching us. You know, remember I said at one point the whole idea of sacraments coming from the word in Greek meaning mystery, but mystery in the sense that it's not something we have to figure out, but mystery in the sense that it, it touches us, but we can't really touch it. We can, we attempt to, we try, we experience it, but it definitely touches us. And we need to trust that it touches us, everything. And it requires a lot of trust, you know, and, and contemplation and reflection that 
this, no matter what it is, whether it's mass, a baptism, a marriage, uh, penance, whatever it is, that this mystery of God, this divine grace is touching us and, and trust it because it's there and it's offered to us. And the, the required disposition, first of all, to be open to it. <laughs> be open to it. Not afraid of it. Be open and amazing things can happen. All right? Um, sacrosanctum concilium now. Um, the purpose of the sacraments, this is paragraph 59. Uh, the purpose of the, sorry, I'm multitasking here. The purpose of the sacraments is to make people holy. Remember, the universal call to holiness. People are not aware of that. You know, and that's, that's an observation, not a judgment. I've had people sitting in front of me. When I talk about the universal call to holiness, they're like, wait, what? Yes. So the purpose of the sacraments is to make people holy, to build up the body of Christ, and finally to give worship to God. But being signs, they also have a teaching function. Remember we said this early on when we talked about liturgical catechesis. The rites, the rites that I showed you, every word in here teaches us just by what it is, the prayer of the church. We learn something from it, right? And, you know, that is um, even called like ritual catechesis, that the ritual is the source. You want to find out the meaning of confirmation, for example? What do you read? The order of confirmation. You'll get the meaning from it. You want to find out the meaning of mass? Read the prayers of the mass and you have it there. It's a beautiful thing. So they not only presuppose faith, but by words and objects, they also nourish, strengthen, and express it. Um, that is why they are called sacraments of faith, all right? Because it takes faith to experience this. So it presupposes faith, you know? But faith needs to be nourished and strengthened, and the sacraments do that for us. They do indeed impart grace, but in addition, the very act of celebrating them disposes the faithful most effectively to receive this grace in a fruitful manner, to worship God rightly, and to practice charity. So remember I said this uh, before, probably said it more than once, but every time we go to Mass, we should leave there transformed. And it, it moves us to, a, to do, to mission, to another place, to think differently, change our worldview every time. That's what this is saying. It is therefore the highest importance that the faithful should readily understand the sacramental signs and should with great eagerness frequent the sacraments that were instituted to nourish the church. Really, all of these statements that we've been talking about from the documents, these can be used as tools to teach people, to help people outside of the sacraments, looking toward the sacraments, looking from, 
beautiful tools to teach them um, to make aware, write an article, put it in the bulletin. We used to have, in one parish I worked in, we had a column, a liturgy column. Did you know? Very short, just a little thing, because people don't want to read a whole big long thing, but they'll read something short. You know, what is it that, like advertisement, it has to be like a minute or something like that, I don't know, three minutes, I don't know what it is. So it's the same thing with that. So we, we have a weekly thing, did you know? And it was like, oh, it was just the way, you know, so it's an idea to take some stuff from this. Um, you know, this whole thing, um, this is why, in my view, you know, uh, many suffered greatly during the pandemic, the lockdown, when they couldn't go to mass, you know, to be nourished. Um, we had a conversation at home recently uh, with my son and daughter-in-law regarding going back to church, is it safe, and this and all that stuff. But um, my husband belongs to the American Guild of Organists, and it's uh, not only Catholic. There's a lot of Protestant organists on this board that he's on. In fact, I think he's at a meeting right now. But anyway, um, a lot of the musicians in Protestant churches saying we're not back yet. We're not back yet. We're not open. So my husband kind of brought that up. You know, well, the Protestant, a lot of Protestant churches aren't open yet, and we are. I thought about that for days and I thought to myself, and this is just my own reflection, that for us, everything that I've read here and what it, this encounter with the divine that we understand is very different than a Protestant understanding. And how can we be without this? That we need to take the precautions, I'm all for that, you know, but we need to be there. Because if anything's gonna, what's the word I wanna use? Uh, heal the pandemic or whatever the right word is to me, it's going to mass. It's going to mass, prayer. That's the thing that's gonna do it. Maybe I sound naive, but I believe that truly. And somebody, you know that whole thing, not essential, essential that we went through? Somebody said to me, well, mass is not, church is not essential. I said, excuse me, it's the most essential thing for me. It's the first place I'm going, <laughs> you know, with my mask in hand. And... Another quick question. Yes, Carlos, please. Um, in the first paragraph, in the first sentence, like how do it says that the, the, that the sacraments give worship to God? I was just wondering, how is that, like, how can a sacrament give worship to God? I don't know, what did they mean by that? Because when we gather for a sacrament, absolutely, sacraments are our response to God's invitation, just like all prayer. And sacraments, as part of the church, is giving praise and worship to God in every sacrament. Everything. It's all about, liturgy is all about worship. Giving honor and glory and praise to God the Father. Absolutely. And we have to look at it that way. There, as you're going to see, when we look at the individual sacraments with God's grace tonight, <laughs> they are celebrations. And celebrating, participating in the celebration of the sacraments is giving worship to God. It's giving God 
what we should be number one priority to to do that. That that's what our baptism calls us to, and and we forget that sometimes. You know that that needs to be the number one thing. Um, in my experience, you know, when we make that the number one thing, things kind of flow a little bit better in life. I had a woman once who was the mother of a catechumen and who was a child. And usually when you have children who are catechumens, uh, they're brought for the sacraments of initiation when they're older. It usually means something's going on in the parent's life that they now want their child who's maybe 10, 11, 12, 13 baptized. But anyway, this woman who on Sunday brought her son to participate in the Liturgy of the Word as a catechumen, she she said to me, it's important that I bring him, but I have so many things to do on Sunday. It's hard for me to be here. So I said to her, and we were walking out of church, and I just said, you know, maybe look at it differently. You know, you have your list of to-do, your to-do list, but maybe if you do this first, everything, you'll get it all done. Well, I want to tell you, a couple of weeks later, she said you were right. When I came consistently and forgot, that's why we say to you, forget about what you left behind. You know, she said, I got everything I needed to do done and in a much better way. You know, so when we give praise and glory to God, first that's the call and trust that all will be well as julian of norwich would say right it will be it will be it's meant to be right so that good that's always good to ask for clarifications like that um don't be afraid to do that um so Sacrosanctum Concilium also talks about sacramentals. This is important, I think. It's a little thing, but it's important. And in paragraph 60, it says, the church, in addition, instituted sacramentals. These are sacred signs bearing a kind of resemblance to the sacraments. They signify effects particularly of a spiritual kind that are obtained through the church's intercession. They dispose people to receive the chief effect of the sacraments and they make holy various occasions in human life. Now I'm gonna elaborate on this uh, on the next um, few pages, but I just um, want you to catch that last Part of the phrase make holy various occasions in human life remember i said well i don't know when i said it last week or the week before liturgy and life are connected liturgy has everything to do with life it's right there you know in other words here they're talking about sacramentals but we could also say sacraments etc they make holy various occasions in human life makes everything that we do holy when we are participating in this. And sacramentals, they'll make more sense in a few slides, I promise. 
All right. Um, so just going back for a minute to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, it says the church celebrates the sacraments as a priestly community structured by the baptismal priesthood and the priesthood of the ordained minister. This is just an aside for a minute, then I'll go back to sacramentals. The Holy Spirit prepares the faithful for the sacraments by the word of God and the faith which welcomes the word in well-disposed hearts. Thus, the sacraments strengthen faith and express it. I put this in here because I just wanted to uh, make that connection between the proclamation of the word and the sacramental action. That in the revisions uh, after the Second Vatican Council, with every single sacrament, there's a liturgy of the word. And that was called for. That first, it's the word proclaimed, the invitation, and then the sacramental action is our response. Make sense? All right, that's just a little insertion here before I go back to sacramentals. The catechism then talks about sacramentals and says the fruit of the sacramental life is both personal and ecclesial. We talked about that. For every one of the faithful, on the one hand, this fruit is life for God in Christ Jesus. For the church, on the other hand, it's an increase in charity and her mission of witness. All right, we already talked about that. So if we go to this, sacramentals. You probably all have an idea of what sacramentals are. I know I do. Um, and then you read this and kind of expanded you know, but these are the signs instituted by the church to sanctify different circumstances of life. So we're not talking about the seven sacraments here, okay? They include a prayer accompanied by the sign of the cross and other signs. Among sacramentals which accompany an important place are blessings, all right, the blessing of, of, of the home, right? If you ever had your home blessed, which are the praise of God, praise and worship, Carlos, praise of God and a prayer to obtain gifts. All right, we want our home blessed. We want the divine to dwell here. You know, it's a beautiful thing, right? <laughs> The consecration of persons, like in vowed religious life, for example, and the dedication of things for the worship of God. That would be like the dedication of an altar. You know, a new if you have a new altar in your church, it's got to be, yeah, it's got to be consecrated, all right, uh, dedicated. And sometimes there's a dedication of a new church or um, renovated church, uh, etc. And this, uh, I used as another resource, there's a, such a thing you may or may not know about called the compendium to the Catechism of the Catholic Church. It's only like this big, as opposed to this big, but it's good. It gives more explanation of things. So I thought to myself, let me go to that and see what it says. Now, as an example of what this means, this medal that I wear, my miraculous medal, all right, or whatever you have. 
you have a cross, you have a medal, etc. You have a rosary bead. Ideally, to really get at this, what it means, because this is a sacramental. However, what I'm suggesting here is that we would move away from saying, you know, Father or Deacon, bless this medal. Yeah, I'm going to give it to my daughter. It's much more effective to give the person the medal and have them go and be blessed as well. All right, I will never forget when I had this blessed and the blessing that I received. See, that's the idea. That's what it's talking about. The connection of the words, the sign, the person, that's beautiful. You see? So I just use that as an example. Um, but that would be something to think about, you know, uh, if you have a rosary, I recently had a rosary, a new rosary, I love rosary beads, and whenever I, there's a, there's a um, dangerous thing called rosary.com, <laughs> and they have such beautiful, but I just recently bought a beautiful pair of rosary beads, and I, I'll never forget having them blessed, but the blessing was for me. And when I use those rosaries every night and I hold them in my hand, I it's tangible, the blessing from that priest who blessed them and me as I would pray them. So that's the beauty of sacramentals. That's just one example. And then if we go to the next, this is important. And, and highlight this, underline it, remember it, dream about it, all right? Because you need to know this at some point in your academic life, those of you for credit. Uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium number seven, in the liturgy, by means of signs perceptible to the senses. Signs, we're talking about sacramental signs. Human sanctification is signified and brought about in ways proper to each of these signs. Now, I have a quote here uh, from Hafner, uh, Peter Lombard, who was, uh, and I put it there for you to see, he was a medieval priest and theologian, uh, was the first to use the Latin expression sacramentalia, corresponding to the word sacramental. <coughs> Sacramentals resemble the sacrament. See, it, it, it's, there's a connection here. Insofar as they are sensible signs, often with matter and form, as we'll talk about uh, toward the end of our session tonight, and are public means of sanctification producing spiritual effects. All right? Now, Just to summarize this, in review, sacraments are signs of God's grace. And we're going to talk about uh, seven sacraments tonight. Whatever way we can, we're going to talk about them. <laughs> Sacramentals are signs of the prayer of the church. And examples would be blessings, as I talked about already for persons, meals, objects, places, and the use of holy water, all right? Sacramentals are connected to the sacramental life of the church and often lead people to the sacraments. That's something to keep in mind. For example, 
I was trying to think of concrete things. So as I was reviewing for tonight, I was thinking, let's say an unbaptized person goes to a wedding in a Catholic church. It happens, right? Maybe, and this is possible, they would be so moved by the prayers that are prayed, particularly the ritual of the marriage, right? That they might have an experience and inquire about the Catholic Church. It's happened. That's one example, right? I once had um, a candidate in the Rite of Christian Initiation of Adults who was a professional singer who sang in Catholic Church choirs. And it was the music that moved him to wanting to become Catholic. So it happened. So these sacramental signs, right? I'm not talking about the actual celebration of the sacrament per se, but everything that goes around that can certainly affect people like the blessing of my rosary beads had a profound effect on me that I will never forget. You see, that's a beautiful thing. Make sense? Any questions? All right, let's take a 10 minute break, 10 minute break, and then we're gonna dive in to the sacraments. Okay, we'll see what we can conjure up here. What the church is trying to do here. Uh, real vision of the church and to know the resources so you never have to make it up. You know, I remember once, I know I give you a lot of examples, but they're from two life. I remember one of the priests I work with asked me a question about confirmation. I said, well, let's look at the right book. And God love him. His response was, oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> but that's where you go. You have a question about a sacrament, go to the source. It's, it's brilliant. Or the catechism. Yeah, but if you go to the right of the church, it's there. It's there. First and foremost, it's there. It's That's what's called... Um, a right, R-I-T-E, based approach to catechesis. And that's the way I teach sacraments. The right book becomes the textbook because everything you want to know about a particular sacrament, now I teach for the seminarian's confirmation. And you want to know about the, the theology of confirmation, you go to the right book, and it's right there. Now, pretty, pretty soon it'll be the order book. No, it is the order. It is, not pretty soon, it is already. Here it is, the order. Confirmation. Okay, so that's, that's the new one. Yeah, 2016. But right order, it means the same thing. But order is the proper um, translation from the Latin. All right, so without further ado, sacraments of initiation. We're gonna begin to break it down uh, briefly though. Um, and again, I keep emphasizing, you can have a whole course on just baptism, you know, and we do offer that here in the Masters of Divinity for seminarians, and then they have confirmation, etc. So I'm giving you highlights here, all right? So the sacraments, remember I said in the outline, I'm breaking 
the seven sacraments into the categories that they fit in. We have sacraments of initiation, sacraments of healing, sacraments of service. That's important. A lot of people don't know that. Keep it in mind. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming you know a lot of this, and I'm just trying to deepen what you already know and lead you to the documents. But anyway, the catechism says baptism, the Eucharist, and the sacrament of confirmation together constitute the sacraments of initiation whose unity must be safeguarded. Prior to the Second Vatican Council, we didn't look at it that way. We didn't know that, all right? Now this is reiterated in Lumen Gentium, the document on the uh, church, all right? Why do you think this is stated in the Catechism of the Catholic Church? Just look at it for a minute. Baptism, the Eucharist, and the Sacrament of Confirmation together constitute the sacraments of an... Anybody have an idea of why it had to be stated whose unity must be safeguarded? Maybe there were initiations taking place without all three of those sacraments? Well, there definitely was. You know, people would think that, oh, I'm baptized. Good enough. I know, I met a lot of people like that. Well, my father and mother had me baptized and they thought they were doing the right thing. Yeah, that's definitely one reason. But also I think we'll see, when we see look at the meaning, we get the meaning from the unity. That's particularly important for confirmation. Now, I'm gonna ask you one more question about this sentence. Does anything strike you about the beginning of the sentence or the, the paragraph? Does the um, sacrament of confirmation, no. It says the- Wait, Jackie, go ahead. No, 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 I, nope. I, don't, I don't got a train of thought yet, yeah. Okay, Barbara. I was just going to say that just as the Eucharist, not first Holy Communion as a sacrament. Right, because the sacrament is the Eucharist at which a person receives their first communion. Right? I know some people use the term first Eucharist. I make a point in the book I wrote on first communion to elaborate on it and say in this book I will say first communion because the Eucharist um, relates to the whole celebration of the mass from the gathering to the dismissal so even though it's not improper to say the bread and wine is the eucharist but this eucharist is the whole thing so it's just but now i'm looking for something else the word together kind of stands out to me anyway okay well and where does that come from together metzger early church it was one event that's true, and that's a great insight, but there's still something else. RCIA. What? The right of Christian initiation. I'm thinking in terms of the Easter vigil yeah. and someone coming into the church and receiving all three 
right? As my, my own children it's did. the unity. Yep. They, they received all three of these sacraments um, initiated into the church in, in one one night. It was just that, that unity of the three in one night. Yep, which goes back to the early church, and that's been restored with the right of Christian initiation of adults. That's absolutely right. Um, Do you but, refer to someone as being fully initiated if they have received all three? Yes, absolutely. That's everything you all said is right. But what I'm looking for here, and maybe it's too obvious, the baptism. You know what? Let me hold my thought for another slide and then you might get it. I just decided. I, I'd, li I'd like you to get it. I'm not going to tell you. Can I just say one thing about baptism? Yes. My, my, my pastor has a, which I understand is a pet peeve. When people say, you know, talk about the they, they, they get a christening, he's like, ah, the christening ship baptized a person. Are you trying to get to the, the relationship between the order and the trinity? Yeah, not the trinity, the order. But we'll the get order, there. I kind of think, yeah. where okay. you're going where baptism should come, confirmation should come right after baptism, and then the Eucharist, which is the seal, which is the what should seal it all together as yeah. opposed to the way it is now. That, that's it, and we're gonna get there. We're gonna get there to the order, all right? Very good, thank you. Yeah, it's true, I remember when my son was putting together the invitation for his daughter's baptism, he emailed me first and said, should I say you're invited to her baptism or her christening? And I'm like, her baptism. <laughs> eventually 
which led to it being called, and I forget which century, I'm so bad at dates, but it's way late, using the word confirmation, okay? But the order, even in modern times, all right, not contemporary, modern times, the order, even though it was separated by years, when infant baptism became the norm, and then we uh, we uh, stopped giving the Eucharist to infants at one point. We read about that in Metzger. The order was still infant baptism, confirmation, and then Eucharist. But confirmation and Eucharist were delayed until about age 12. 1314. In 1910, Pius X lowered the age for First Communion to seven. That is the premier moment that distorted the order because the theology, as when we get to it, that I hope you'll see, the theology of confirmation is that it strengthens baptism. And it is the vision of the church. And if you read the right book, The Order of Confirmation, that's how it's spelled out, that it's after baptism, not delayed till you're 16, which is there's a big movement in the United States for a lot, most bishops want to push it into adolescence. Developmentally, it's absolutely worst time to ask uh, teenagers to make commitment. It, it doesn't work, but we do it to keep them. That's a whole nother conversation. But the RCIA has been brought up, as you will learn when we get to that, and some of you have heard me say this before, canon law, calls for that if um, if a child is baptized, a child over the age of seven is baptized, they must be confirmed. They must, no choice. At the same time, religion? Yes, no, right there at the Easter Vigil. They must, there's no choice. Okay, but what if, what if they're baptized other than the Easter Vigil? And they're over the age of seven? Yeah. Well, they shouldn't be. <laughs> That's conversation. They shouldn't be baptized over the age no, of seven? No, they shouldn't be baptized at another time. It, the point is the right of Christian initiation of adults calls for the unity of the three sacraments of initiation. That That's why at the Easter Vigil, full initiation of an adult, an adult is anybody canonically, some of you in canon law, over the age of seven. Yes, considered an adult in the church. I thought it was 18. No, no. Ask Father Elder, he'll back me up. It's seven. So when we baptize anybody over the age of seven, we must confirm them. Some, with all due respect, some priests think they're not going to do that. Well, then keep them catechumens longer. That's the answer. And that's one, okay. I was one of those lucky ones, and I never understood why. Then. Now it makes sense. And then, as Jackie said, here, the Eucharist, as you're going to see, is the climax of initiation. That's why the restored order is an important 
thing. And there are 11 dioceses in the United States that have restored the order to infant baptism, confirmation somewhere around the age of seven or eight, and then first communion. And canonically, you can do it. It's allowed. It requires a lot of preparation and a lot of education in a parish, but there, there are bishops who have written pastoral letters on it. And it's if you look at the order of confirmation, the ritual text, Rome never envisioned confirmation for adolescents. It's envisioned for children. Again, I teach a whole course on this, but that's just whet your appetite to learn more, all right? And, and out of this, what I'm looking, what you'll see when I isolate confirmation, that confirmation is very connected to baptism, theologically. And even if it's celebrated years after, we still have to get our understanding of the theology of the sacrament from baptism. But let me backtrack a minute. I can tell you're really thinking, your wheels are turning, Bob. I can see it. I don't think you believe me about age seven. I believe you. But I'm going to check my slot on Monday anyway. <laughs> all right. So, baptism. All right. Briefly. The word itself means to emerge or to plunge. If you remember the language I used previously, you know, we're plunged into the Paschal mystery. I love that. That is so poetic and so powerful. But here it is, the Catechism of the Catholic Church I've been really faithful to tonight. Holy baptism is the basis of the whole Christian life. The gateway to the spirit, to life in the spirit, the door which gives access to other sacraments. You can't celebrate any other sacrament without being baptized, right? If somebody gets married to an unbaptized person in the church, it's not sacramental. Okay, because an unbaptized person, I'm not talking about a catechumen, because a catechumen can get married in the church, and there's a right in this right book that I showed you, the order of matrimony, or a catechumen. But an unbaptized person, can it's not sacramental, and there's dispensations for that, but that's Father Elder's problem, not mine. <laughs> um, <laughs> Theoretically, you could, but is it recommended? No. You should be fully initiated when you enter into the sacrament of matrimony. You should be fully initiated. But technically, some would say no. And when sometimes on a pastoral level, if a person hasn't been adults, and we run into this all the time with adult confirmation, they're not, and they want to get married in the church. I have met very good priests that say, first concentrate on preparing for your marriage and then come back and prepare for confirmation. It's not the ideal. The ideal would be to, be, to enter into the sacrament of marriage to be fully initiated. My husband um, is a catechist, and he teaches um, seventh grade. And many of the parents, particularly the mothers, will tell the kids, "Oh, 
questions that have to be confirmed so that you can get married later. I know. I used to get that answer all the time, and I would never say to a kid, well, that's not true, because it is the ideal, and we should want that. Absolutely. We should want it. You know. Okay? Yeah. I just got a curiosity. I was curious about your conversation with Bob. You're both right, it seems, because they do define an adult as over 18. However, for the sacraments. Yeah, canonically. Oh, I see. Yeah, I'm talking canonically. Oh, well, we're talking. I'm talking canonically. Okay, okay. Ah, it's different. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, to Google it. <laughs> no, 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 but under canon law, an adult is 18 as well. But they separate yes. the numbers out for sacraments. Right. Eight that's correct. Seven. That's what I'm referring to. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That That's why the right of Christian initiation of adults includes a child who is over the age of seven. That's a really hard thing but that's for people the, to understand. That's the age, age of reason. That's what they're talking about. Yeah. And the, the um, oh, there's one document, maybe it's the RCIA, catechetical age. I think the RCIA uses that language. They're of catechetical age, meaning they can learn. Right. Yeah. yeah. Canon law is, is seven. Is You reach supposedly reach the age of reason. Yes. Yes. And the, the bottom line here is we should want children to have these graces Absolutely. the problem is a catechetical problem and the, it's the catechists that'll argue because they want to keep them longer and longer but it's not working because they're keeping them under protest and the the ideal catechetically is to catechize the adults and the parents we talked about this last week so that this life of faith, this life, living out a sacramental life, living out our baptism, our confirmation, the Eucharist, our marriage is part of who we are in our household. That's the problem. My sister was confirmed when she was in third grade. I was confirmed when I was in sixth grade. But moving into high school, with all due respect, is not working at all. But anyway, and my, my rationale is that very um, scholars would say Rome never envisioned it. They envision the sacrament of confirmation for children. To me, that's the most convincing. Yeah, just yeah. real quick comment. Yeah, yeah. Um, this last go around, I had a girl that told me, she said, I'm sorry, I can't come to confirmation. I have to work that day. And I said, you're going to have to decide what's more important to you. But that was her answer. It was when the bishop was coming. She said, I can't come that day because I have to work. I know. I know. I had somebody once come. They were talking to my assistant and I overheard. And the, you know, confirmation programs are set up for the kids. Um, you have to attend catechesis for two years, minimum, et cetera, and all this. But anyway, the mother said... Well, my child is on a traveling soccer team and it conflicts. I have no choice. And my assistant, who is the kindest person in the world, very kindly said, well, you're making the choice for soccer. <laughs> you do have a choice and you're making the choice for soccer. That's so sad. That's so sad. But I maintain 
mean, if people really understand what this is, soccer wouldn't be important at all. That's the problem. But they don't understand. No, I know. So we got to teach them. We have to. It's And Robert, you brought this up weeks ago. It's a, there's a catechetical problem, and I'm speaking from both sides. I'm a liturgist, but I'm also a catechetical person. You know what I mean? So I get it. But it's being very practical. You can't get to the kids if you can't get to the parents. Well, that's exactly right. And that's part of the problem of the whole system. That's the, the whole problem. Works. Yeah. Well, yeah. Because kids are going to do what their parents tell them to do. Yeah. And if a okay. parent says, you're not playing soccer this year, that's what I would say. Anyway. Okay. You guys are good there on Zoom or... That's okay. This is you're thinking about it. I love it. All right. So anyway, baptism. This is important. Keep it in mind. Through baptism, we're freed from sin. I think everybody knows that, right? Everybody probably in the world knows that. And reborn as sons and daughters of God. And we become members of Christ, are incorporated into the church. People don't know that part. Remember, it's ecclesial. We become part of the body of Christ. We cease to live in isolation. We're plunged into the Paschal mystery, right? And made sharers in the mission. That's why what I said before, quoting RCIA paragraph nine, initiation is the responsibility of all the baptized because that's what it means to be baptized. That I need to care about your child being baptized and I should be there praying and supporting and not worried that it's five minutes longer. You see what I'm saying? That's what it means. Okay. This is from Hafner, the, the commentary on the sacrament. The immersion. And this is interesting to note because we've already looked at the history in Metzger. The immersion came to symbolize the catechumen's burial into Christ's death, from which he rises with him, a new creature. That's what baptism is. The baptismal font represents, signifies Christ's tomb. So I don't care if it's an infant or an adult, when they are held over the baptismal font. I think we have very few immersion pools in this diocese and others. They are, the words should be, enter Christ's tomb, because you're dying with Christ. But then you come up out of the water and you rise with him. That's profound, poetic, real language. It's so beautiful to me. But that's coming from the early church, the catechumen's burial into Christ's death. And this is significant, what I decided to put on here. This is the, one of the readings at the Easter Vigil, and you all know there's tons of readings uh, at the Easter Vigil, right? But this is the epistle, and it is the linchpin, the linchpin at the Vigil. Brothers and sisters, are you unaware that we who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? This is for me and you to hear every Easter, right? As we're going to renew our baptismal promises. We were indeed buried with him through baptism into death 
so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might live in the newness of life. We can look at that every day and meditate on it and make our day a lot better. Living our life is the baptized, but that came right from the lectionary. The vigil in the holy night of Easter is the, what the Roman Missal calls it. Okay? But that's the linchpin of the entire Easter vigil. Whether you have catechumens or not, because we're all going to renew our baptismal promises. And when we talk about the liturgical year, we'll talk more about that. Okay? So baptism. You have somewhat of a brief sense of it, but basically we need to take what it means and live it out every day. That we wake up thinking, I'm baptized. And the decisions I make are based on that. And that's live, living a life centered in Christ. Okay? Yeah, absolutely. All right, so confirmation. And again, I don't want to belabor it, but I could go on and on and on. Uh, but I won't, I promise. But many theologies have developed through the centuries. And, but... We took all those weeks to look at the history. Our early history informs us that it's connected to baptism. Because remembering that originally it was the anointing after baptism. End of story. Done by the bishop. Okay? So, looking at the catechism, and then we'll look at the order of confirmation. Um, for by the sacrament of confirmation, the baptized are more perfectly bound to the church and are enriched with a special strength of the Holy Spirit. This is where we get the theology of confirmation. I'm sure you've heard things like it's the sacrament of maturity. That's not correct. They're going to make their own choice now. Not correct. It goes back to their baptism. And when you're preparing candidates, on the practical pastoral level, you're preparing candidates for confirmation. You need to deepen their understanding of their baptism. I can remember one time talking to catechists who were going to teach confirmation candidates. And I'm up there talking about baptism. Somebody raised their hand and said, we're preparing kids for confirmation. Why are you talking about baptism? <laughs> yeah. That led to a whole... You know, thinking on the spot, a whole different lesson that I had to say to myself, oh, my God, they don't know. I taught confirmation for four years, and the kids would always uh, want to make a partial baptism because I don't, I think I wouldn't know the catechism, but it says the confirmation. We receive the same outpouring of the Holy Spirit as was once granted to the apostles on the day of Pentecost. Yes, and at our baptism. Aren't we baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit? Yep. So we have to watch our language. Because I, with all due respect, observation, I've heard people say, well, at confirmation, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit for the first time. Wrong words. God forgive me, but I've heard bishops say it. But it's just the wrong words. It's not the first time. The gift of the Holy Spirit already present in our life through baptism is deepened, strengthened. If it's 16 years later, it doesn't matter. The theology doesn't change, whether it's at the Easter Vigil together or if it's 16 years later. The theology remains the same, and it's important. 
because, and there's a wonderful book. Oh, Jackie, what's it called? How a Sacrament of God's Grace Became All About Us. us. It's one of my favorite books on the Sacrament of Confirmation, how we've distorted the meaning of it. Anyway. Is it always, um, and has it always been, a bishop for confirmation? Yes. In the early church, the catechumen went to the baptistry uh, for their baptism, which was done outside of the assembly, and... My resources tell me it was because they were stripped naked, take off the old, immersed, come up and then clothed in the white garment. Then they were brought into the assembly and the bishop anointed them. But it wasn't called confirmation. It was the anointing after, it was the public affirmation of their baptism that happened downstairs or next door or wherever in the basilica, in the baptistry. Yeah. So it, that has always been reserved to a bishop. The RCIA allows, with permission, for a priest to confirm if they are baptizing. On, on Pentecost. Well, we'll talk about that, not necessarily. It depends. That's Catholics. If a person, I don't want to get off topic, but to your, you're right. If a person is baptized Catholic as an infant, and as an adult is being confirmed, the permission is granted for the, a priest to confirm on Pentecost. But with the RCIA, um, for the unbaptized, they baptize and confirm at the Easter Vigil. But we're going to talk all about that. Okay? All right? Good. All right? We're good? All right. So, uh, this is the order of confirmation. Uh, it starts off with what's called the Apostolic Constitution, which is quoting from Lumen Gentium, the dogmatic constitution on the church. It says, through the sacrament of confirmation, those who have been born anew in baptism receive the ineffable gift, the Holy Spirit himself, by whom they are endowed with special strength. So the key word is here that confirmation is a strengthening. That's the theology. It's strengthening what happened at baptism, whether it was five minutes ago or 16 or 30 years ago, doesn't matter. The confirmation is about a growing awareness of who we are as the baptized, strengthen those gifts of the Holy Spirit so we can live them out for the rest of our lives. Okay? It's really important because we've really mixed it up in recent years that the, the, the theology of confirmation is all over the place. And the, and the best way is to look at the, what the order of confirmation, look at the prayers, and it all talks about this. It talks about baptism, it talks about strengthening, etc. And I think the important piece that I want you to get is the connection between confirmation and baptism. That's important. And when you read Sacrosanctum Concilium thoroughly, you're going to see that. And it's in there. And it's also in Lumen Gentium. So going back to the catechism, catechism 
for further insight from the time of the apostles imparted to the newly baptized by the laying on of hands the gift of the spirit that completes the grace of baptism okay that's another way of saying it completes the grace all right very early yes carlos well quick question of the uh, at baptism the um holy spirit right um the holy spirit um, I think it um, incorporates it into the life of the Trinity. I don't know how to say it, word it, but yeah. like, I think it, um, the Holy Spirit um, like immerses it. I don't know what word is used. A person, and this is going to come up on a, um, I have it on one of the slides, but a per, when we talk about matter and form, we are baptized, I bapt, like Carlos, the priest said, Carlos, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit always in the trinity yes so that's what i meant before the person being baptized has received the holy spirit already and it doesn't go away but in confirmation it's strengthened so we're when we're teaching people about confirmation we have to bring about that awareness of who they a deeper awareness of their own baptism and what it means that they are sharing life with the trinity Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that those gifts of the Holy Spirit that we will elaborate on will be strengthened and deepened for 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 our whole life. One thing that's probably but, really important in this, the, particularly for the Nike uh, candidates, is that when you baptize, it's John, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's one case of somebody who went to be ordained as a priest. Somebody looked at a film of his baptism and the priest said, we, and it invalidated wow. all of the sacraments. You had to go through them all over again. I know. I remember reading that. Yeah, you have to use You honor. have to use the correct matter and form. Well, we'll look at that, what that means, but that's absolutely right. And that's where the rubrics become important. And we don't fool around with that. And in Sacrosanctum Concilium, it, I think last week we looked at it that nobody can change the words of what's in these right books. Nobody has the right to do it. Nobody. All right. So very, um, very early, uh, the better to signify the gift of the Holy Spirit, an anointing with perfumed oil called chrism. Chrism is consecrated by the bishop on Holy Thursday. All right. And this was added to the laying on of hands. All right, that's this gesture. And now if you look at the rite of confirmation, when the bishop anoints, his hand is actually also on the person as he's signing them with the chrism. All right, so this was very early on, and it's in the Didache, as a matter of fact. But this anointing, highlights the name Christian, which means anointed. Now, when we look at sacramental character, this, this is part of it here, all right? But I, I, the main takeaway here is the connection between baptism and confirmation was restored with the Second Vatican Council. We didn't look at it as being connected um, prior to the council, all right? And it's also, connected to the Eucharist. And if you were to look at the order of confirmation, it should ideally be celebrated within mass, 
because that makes the connection to the Eucharist, the three sacraments of initiation. You see, um, there's the renewal of baptismal promises. I didn't, you know, I didn't want to prolong this, but it's worth saying now. In the order of confirmation, the renewal of baptismal promises, all right? And it was in the first revised rite of 1971, I think it is, um, to further show the connection with baptism then celebrated within mass to show the connection with the Eucharist, all right? I received my confirmation outside of mass when I was in the sixth grade and it was in Latin, okay? I do remember it though. But just as an aside, if you were to look at the order of confirmation, it makes provision for outside of mass. And I can remember during the pandemic saying to the students, well, I don't know who would ever do this. Well, guess what? During the pandemic, we did it because it was a shorter time to keep people in the building. So that was an example of when would you use this under extraordinary circumstances. All right. So anyway, there's a lot more that can be said. And I, what I hope is I whet your appetite to read more about all of this, um, because in this course, we, we just can't do it. And the Eucharist, I'm not going to say a lot about it now because we'll look at that when we look at the general instruction. Uh, we'll look at more. Um, we'll dedicate a whole class to it. Um, but again, uh, just to see the connection, the Eucharist as a sacrament of initiation. Again, prior to the council, it wasn't viewed this way, right? And the Catechism of the Catholic Church says, Explicitly, the Holy Eucharist completes Christian initiation. That goes back to what I said before with the distorted order. Because what does it look like now with children baptized as infants? What completes initiation? Confirmation. It looks that way, but theologically, no, it doesn't. In practice, it looks like it. That's part of the problem with the order. See what I'm saying? It's, it's a pastoral problem that some bishops have figured out a way and they can canonically restore the order. But it's a theological fact that the Holy Eucharist completes initiation. And I wanna point out that the Eucharist, we probably don't often think about this, but it's the only repeatable sacrament of initiation there's one baptism one confirmation and we'll look at that in a minute what if we get to sacramental character but you can receive the eucharist every day so it's repeatable i remember saying that once at a parent meeting and 20 years later a woman came up to me and said i never forgot that you said that that i think about it all the time that's amazing right um, so it's, and again, uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium, as you know, says the Eucharist is the source and summit of Christian life, right? It's the most important thing that we do. More on the Eucharist when we look at the general um, instruction. So sacraments of healing, I love that. I love that. You know, when we talk about salvation, salvation means healing. And we have these two beautiful sacraments um of healing uh, sacrament of penance and reconciliation that's the words of the church if you were to look at the rite of 
penance, that's what it's called. Um, and that was a change after the Second Vatican Council. And the, the history and everything is very, very interesting. And I'm gonna refer you to where, if you're interested, you could read about it. But this sacrament, in my experience, is highly misunderstood for people. people are, some people are afraid of this sacrament for various reasons. Um, on the pastoral level, we need to make efforts to help people to understand it. Uh, we used to make a concerted effort in the last parish I worked in that me, the pastor and the school principal, we brought all the parents together three times during the year, parents of children who were gonna celebrate their first penance, okay? And our goal was to bring them back to the sacrament if they haven't been in a while. So we basically opened up the, the first meeting by saying, forget about all your preconceptions and let's just start over of what this sacrament is in light of the vision of the church. Now, go back to what we said about sacraments, it all applies, celebrations. We say that to people, celebration, going to confession? Yeah, we're celebrating God's love and mercy. It doesn't get better than that, right? That's a beautiful thing. The celebration of God's love and mercy for us. That's so wonderful. Um, and then uh, the anointing of the sick. And we really saw changes here. And this is elaborated a little bit in that chapter three of Sacrosanct Concilium. But this is where changes really happened after the Second Vatican Council. And um, I'll tell you more about it in a minute. I just want to break it down. Penance and reconciliation, the catechism. Those who approach the sacrament of penance obtain pardon from God mercy for the offenses committed against them and are at the same time reconciled with the church which they have wounded by their sins and which by charity by example and by prayer labors for their conversion emphasis added this is really important because this sacrament like all the other sacraments as we said in the beginning the introduction to this section are ecclesial so my sin affects you, not just me. And that's what it means to be reconciled with the church, the body of Christ. When we sin, it's affecting everybody. People need to know that. It's not private, you know? It's, oh, this isn't gonna bother anybody but me. No, it's affecting the body is wounded and we need to heal that. That's important. Um, there are three forms of this sacrament. If you were to go to a ritual text, there's what is referred to um, as private confession. And most people are aware of that Saturday afternoon confession. Okay. Then there's a service with private confession. That's my favorite, where there's a proclamation of the word, uh, homily, um, and then there's the opportunity for private confession. That really gives an ecclesial dimension to it. When you're there praying together, saying the act of contrition together, and then you go to your private confession, you really get a sense we're all in this together, all right? 
So that's always my favorite, and we always did it during Advent and Lent where I used to work. Uh, some parishes do it, some don't, but I think it's a great thing, and it's a great thing for first penance, I think, as well. Then there's a third form. Anybody know what it's called? General absolution, good Robert. Yeah, but that's like in cases of war. We don't, you know. Um, like do it on Jesuit retreats too. You know. <laughs> that's not really a war, right? <laughs> I won't tell. It's okay. All right. So again, there's a lot more to be said, but um, we don't have time in this class. The catechism refers to using these words, conversion, penance, confession, forgiveness, reconciliation. This is important and it leads to a broader understanding here of this sacrament, which I had a reputation when I was an MA student. People used to say, oh, Donna, she loves penance. But I had a love for this sacrament. I really did and I still do because so powerful. And my first MA course was called Reconciliation and Healing. I used to leave the classroom practically in tears. It was so moving. So that's my love grew. But it's, you know, it's about conversion. When we enter the confessional, whatever, you know, form we can, we have a desire to change. And we should, because God calls us to conversion every single day. So when we make that effort, it, we are saying, yeah, I want to be better. I, I want to change. Penance, that's our reparation. We get a, a, a the priest gives us a, a penance. So it's part of it, right? So that's why these words are used, sacrament of penance. But the thing about a penance, if a, when the priest gives us a penance, you know, we might leave the confessional, go kneel down and say whatever he said or whatever. But it's meant, I'll give you an example. Recently, I went to confession a couple of months ago. And the priest said to me, for your penance, say, Jesus, I trust in you 10 times. I want to tell you that every single day, I must say it 100 times. Because the point is, whenever I fall and repeat the sin that I confess, I rely on that. Jesus, I trust you. It's a reminder. So whatever it is, a rosary, an Our Father, a Hail Mary, an act of kindness, it's meant not just to be said and forgotten about, but to remind you for as long as you need to be reminded that you don't want to fall back into this pattern, you see, of whatever it is. Make sense? So, and then certainly confession, the telling of one's sins is part of it as well, right? Um, if we're sorry, we ask for, we get, God forgives us, right? And the, with the um, re, the revision, after the Second Vatican Council, the word reconciliation is added. Sacrament of penance and reconciliation, because reconciliation is the goal. To be reconciled with God, with one another, with the church, okay? Okay, so just a little note here. There's a beautiful historical and theological development in the Hefner book, if you're so interested now or sometime in your life. 
it's there, okay? Uh, that being, as you know, is a whole course in itself. But it's there. If you're really interested, give it a read, okay? Anointing of the sick. As I said before, we saw a lot of change here because it was extra motion, first of all, and it was reserved for somebody on their deathbed, pretty much. This person's going to die, call the priest, get him to come. But we have a change here, and we see it in Lumen Gentium. It's also in Sacrosanctum Concilium, but I didn't note it here, and the Catechism. By the sacred anointing of the sick and the prayer of the priest, the whole church, see the ecclesial dimension of even the sacrament of the sick, even though it might be in the hospital bed, or at home in your bedroom, whatever. The whole church commends those who are ill to the suffering and glorified Lord, that he may raise them up and save them. And indeed, uh, she exhorts them to contribute to the good of the people of God by freely uniting themselves to the passion and death of our Lord. This is, a, this is truth. For some people, it's a tall order. You know, for 11 months, my sister was dying and took her a long time to wrap herself around it. I, one of the students here gave me a cross and I gave it to her, it was wooden. She never let go of it. And I finally, a week before she died, I said, the cross is a place of glory. Be concerned about the things of heaven. And she died peacefully in a week. She wrapped her head around and got away from my house, my kids, my husband, my this, my that, because she was very sick, gravely sick. Powerful stuff, but it's that uniting. And we can do this with the little deaths, not just physical death, but the key, that's Paschal Mystery. Unite ourselves to the passion and death of Jesus, because then we know this resurrection. It's beautiful, beautiful. But the point here is, this is ecclesial. It's not a private thing, right? And the purpose is conferral of a special grace for those experienced great illness or even old age. Each time a Christian falls seriously ill, he may receive the anointing of the sick. See, this is different. It's not reserved. You know, I think 30 years ago, I was very sick. And I received the sacrament, I requested it, like three times, because I needed the strength of it. You know, and it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. That whole sacramental thing, the prayers that are there. And then to know, um, so it's meant for serious illness, you know, not a cold, you know what I mean. But uh, only priests and bishops can celebrate this and it consists of the anointing of oil on hands and forehead. Special graces. As I said, united with the passion of Christ, strengthening. It gives peace. It gives courage. Sometimes it gives the restoration of health. Right? But in other times, it is preparation for death. As it was for my sister. Because she knew she was going to die. Okay? So it's a beautiful thing that the church has, um, just so beautiful. Sacraments, yes, Carlos. Sorry, there was a there was a lady like on the internet. I was listening to it yesterday or two days ago. 
she said that the confession, I mean, yeah, sacrament of confession is like a mini, a mini exorcism. So I was like surprised to hear that exorcism or something like that. When we talk about the rite of Christian initiation of adults, I'll make sure I include that because in that rite of the church, an exorcism is a minor rite. It has nothing to do with exorcisms, which is a major rite of the church. That she, we shouldn't connect that. That's a whole different thing. If somebody is possessed by the evil spirits and and exorcist is called in, that's different. But there is a minor rite of exorcism that's attached to baptism and it ha and it's part of the catechumenate. Um, so I'll make sure that I address that. So in the sense of it being a minor right in the RCIA with the, with the catechumens, they don't celebrate the sacrament of reconciliation prior to baptism because that makes no sense. But there is in the scrutiny rites during Lent, there is a prayer of exorcism but it's meant to strengthen all that is good in them and to, to, to take away all that is weak. So in that sense, I would say yes, but it's not the language that we use with the sacrament of penance, okay? Be careful what you listen to on the internet. Gotta be very careful. In yeah. Metzger, there was reference way back in the early days about an exorcism, right? But they made it clear that it wasn't for our enemy. It was more for pagan gods and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. That anything weak in me will be healed. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the minor rights in the RCIA are called exorcism. And and it's it's part of the minor rights of the church. But, uh, you know, I, when I teach that course, I always have to make it clear. This isn't, you know, the major right of exorcism. Totally different. But that's the language from the early church that we um, that we are we use because it and the, the key is understanding what it means for us today because people get the wrong impression <gasps> you know it's not about that it's very powerful so powerful so powerful i'm gonna really try to finish this okay so just bear with me sacraments of service and communion of communion holy orders and matrimony catechism again Holy Orders is the sacrament through which the mission entrusted by Christ to his apostles, this is so beautiful, continues to be exercised in the church until the end of time. I love that, like in an ordination rite, you know, when all the priests sort of come and lay hands on the man being ordained, it really just gives you a sense that this has been happening for all these beautiful, it's very powerful to me. And uh, holy orders includes three decrees. Episcopate, which is bishops, ordination being a bishop, presbyterate, priests, and a diaconate. And some of you are getting close, right? Um, Episcopal ordination is the fullness of the sacrament of holy orders. I recently watched live stream um, the pastor that I worked with last was just made a bishop of Delaware, Wilmington, Delaware, um, um, Bishop Bill Koenig. And um, 
I just will never forget the look on his face of such joy. You know, and as I looked at these words, the fullness of the sacrament of holy orders, I, I understood his joy. It was amazing. Um, the ordination of priests who are co-workers of the bishop. You know, we always have to remember that your priests in your parish are there representing the bishop. Because the bishop can't be everywhere. And we saw that in Metzger in the early church, right? And then the ordination of deacons in the order of service. Um, there's a book. I don't think I had it when I did your bibliography, but I think I mentioned it for deacon candidates. The Deacon's Ministry of the Liturgy. All right, I think I, I don't know if I brought it the first weeks, but you should write it down. Uh, I haven't finished reading it, but it really, it's written by a deacon, and it really focuses on uh, the liturgical aspect. And one aspect that I will mention here, uh, if you give me five more minutes to finish this, I would be, I will say a rosary on my way home to all of you. <laughs> the one thing is, the deacon proclaims the gospel, right? And the purpose of diaconate is to serve. Now, you probably know this, deacon candidates, right? But many people don't know. The, this connects the proclamation of the gospel to the mission of service. That's why. That's amazing. Not too many people know that. People have to hear that. It's making the connection from the, the altar, if you will, to the world. That's, that's profound. So that's why it's the deacon that's proclaiming the gospel. And then the deacon who is serving the community in whatever um, capacity that you're called to. The sacrament of matrimony. And here I'm referencing the newly revised order of celebrating matrimony. It used to be called, after the Second Vatican Council, the rite of marriage. And I think you could probably guess why the church used the language of matrimony. Because of what's going on in our world with like same-sex marriage and all that kind of stuff. The church had to use the proper language. The sacrament of matrimony is very different, very different than what the world thinks it is. And basically the right paragraph one, you remember I said, you look at right books, you can get the meaning right there. Here it is. The matrimonial covenant by which a man and a woman establish a lifelong partnership between themselves derives its force and strength from creation. But for the Christian faithful, it is also raised up to a higher dignity since it is numbered among the sacrament of the new covenant. Now, again, if you want to read the history, you can, but it wasn't always a sacrament. You know, it, it became named as a sacrament with trend, but in the early years, everything was, that people did was considered holy and connected with the divine. So it gradually went from being according to the culture to maybe then a blessing, you know, but then it grew into this and then named as a sacrament and for a very good reason, because like baptism, I have to wake up every day and live out my marriage as do many of you, right? 
And, and we have to remember, it's not just like the wedding day. It's, you know, we're living it out. For better or for worse. <laughs> right? Oh, my goodness. Um, sacrament signifies the union of Christ and his church. That's beautiful. Think about that, all of you who are married. You know? And it's based on the consent of the, the, the contracting partners is the language of the catechism. And it's on their will to give themselves each to another mutually, definitively, in order to live out the covenant. Covenant is new language. The old language was contract. The covenant is the new language. New like after the Second Vatican Council. Right? So that's important. And I know all of you who are in the canon law class, you're going to all focus on uh, that. All right, bear with me because we're almost to the finish line for tonight. I appreciate it. All right, and again, it could be a whole course. Um, matter and form. I mentioned it before that every sacrament has matter and form. I'm just going to give you an example. All right? Um, and this uh, term was first applied during the Middle Ages, all right, that we already looked at a long time ago. But that's where we got this language, matter and form, when we were regulating things, right? But when we talk of form, the words spoken by the minister of the sacrament. So as the example I used before, and I used your name, Barbara. <laughs> Barbara, I back. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's the form. The matter, and um, I think it's Hefner refers to remote and proximate. That's not really important. But that which is used in carrying out the sacrament. Right? So in other words, remember the sacramentals we talked about are used. So for example, in baptism, Water is the remote matter, all right? It's direct, we see the water. However, the actual pouring of the water is the proximate matter of the sacrament. In other words, that's, the, that's, that's how the water comes alive, by the pouring of it. So the matter is the pouring of water, not just the water. You see what I'm saying? Because remember, liturgy is action. So it's the pouring of the water. And then there are effects. And absolutely sacramental grace is an effect of sacraments. The sacraments are carried out in the power and by the invocation, epiclesis, invocation of the Holy Spirit, who is the gift of the Father through the Son. The Holy Spirit is also associated with the grace bestowed upon the recipient of each sacrament. So that goes back to what we said before when we talked about sacraments in general, that we are encountering divine life, the Trinity within us. It's beautiful. As I said, people would be knocking down the door if they really understood the depth of this. Okay? Um, sacramental character. This is the last point for tonight. Um, baptism, confirmation, and holy orders. Okay? Impart a specific permanent 
feel upon the recipient. And this is called sacramental character. And that's why these three sacraments cannot be repeated. All right? This sacramental seal, this comes from, in the next bullet point, the patristic period. And if you remember, we talked about people like Irenaeus and Tertullian. Baptism and confirmation were called a stamp or a seal. And it was compared to, in that time, like the seal and wax on a letter indicating the authority of the sender. All right, we don't do that anymore, but you can picture it. You know, if you watch old biblical movies, that seal of the ring in the wax on an envelope, right? Just as Christ is the likeness of the Father, Christians are stamped or sealed with the likeness of Christ by the Holy Spirit. This is a perfect uh, thought to end the night because this is a powerful reminder of what we all have. Um, through baptism and confirmation, and for some of you, eventually through holy orders. But think about that a beautiful sacramental character of your baptism and your confirmation. Uh, we've got it. We've got these graces, and we still have the graces from our baptism. If it was 100 years ago, we're, we're living out those graces. We have them. And that sacramental character remains with us. This became evident to me when I had to do a revision of a confirmation textbook for a publishing company. I was like I was reliving it, and I was like, I had this um, this moment of saying, I've got this. I have this. I have to remember this every day. So it, the sacraments are such a beautiful thing, and not to be taken lightly, um, but really to be considered. And I really hope that this is just the jumping off point that you will embrace this for the rest of your life and do more research and reading. And as I said, this is, this is one of the best books. It's very good. You could get all the information you want. And certainly the Catechism of the Catholic Church, that second part as well. Um, think about some questions so I don't delay you any longer. I will confirm 100% the Huntington situation for next week. That's the plan. But don't forget you all on Long Island. Let me know if you're coming. I'll remind you. But that being said, um, as we grow in this deeper awareness of who we are as the baptized and the anointed um, of Christ, so beautiful, uh, let us go forth from here. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Have a good week. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good week. Bye-bye.